Hello, I'm Andrew Gentile. And I'm Ariana. And you're listening to Behind the Flicks. This show is all about me sharing as many facts as I know about filmmaking and directors and behind-the-scenes info about movies and whatnot to Ariana. And you'll join us for the ride. Our guest today is the co-creator of me. But he also influenced my decision to go into filmmaking, as covered in our episode about Kill Bill. Since I was about eight or so, I knew I, I knew about filmmaking, and while my mom always gushed over Tarantino during my formative years, this guest always talked about Hitchcock, Spielberg, and Lucas. Please welcome my dad, Brian Gentile. How are you doing, Chopper? Good. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> Uh, well, that, that is an a, old lo- a loyal patron of Behind the Flicks. That's right. That's an old reference to talk radio that predates the two of you by quite a lot. Oh, darn. So before we ask you questions, Dad, Ariana, can we please yes. get a review of this episode's film? Oh, ho, ho, ho. the review of this episode's film is Star Wars, A New Hope, the original Star Wars uh, film that introduced this series to the world. And um, I just got done watching it about 30 minutes ago. And it is a fun, fun ride. It's action-packed, especially for the date that this movie was released. It doesn't go more than, I'd say, like 20 minutes without something major happening. And it's about a story of a young kid who uh, is learning about his destiny, more or less, I would say. And also about a uh, fabulous rebellion against an empirical uh, political party that is gruesome and <laughs> destroyed the Jedi that we you don't really know about until much later but it's ta- it's mentioned and uh, it's all about it's just the beginning of an epic story and Ariana the big question what grade are you going to give it ooh I mean it's fun it's entertaining Han Solo I think makes it <laughs> quite uh, what it is um, I, I give this one a, a B plus. Dad, B plus. reactions? Wow. Harsh. <laughs> B plus would be harsh. It was, it was epic <laughs> in the summer of 1977 at its release. It was epic. And I've watched it many times since, but I haven't watched it in a, in a number of years. I watched it just a few days ago, and I believe that the term epic still applies. So <laughs> I, would give it, I would give it a very strong A. Ooh. Not an A plus. An A plus. I mean, it's one of the it's one of the most memorable movies of my lifetime. Sure. If not the most memorable movie movie of my lifetime. How old were you when you saw this? Thirteen. Oh. I was thirteen in the summer of nineteen seventy seven. I'm thinking back. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and um, you know, and and this movie was so impactful on on that moment in my life. Not just for me, but for everyone around me. You could argue for the entire United States and eventually the world. What? That it, it, yeah, it was this big. I'm telling you, it was it was one of the f- movies that literally created the term blockbuster. What? I didn't know that. Yeah. Yes. Explain wow. what explain what the literal term blockbuster is. Well, it meant that a movie was so popular that as it moved across the country to theaters the groundswell of interest was so high that people would stand in line around the block from the movie of the movie theater to get tickets first and then to get in to get a great seat and so the term blockbuster meant that the line snaked all around the block of the movie theater 
my mind is blown right now. I mean, of all the times that I've went to Blockbuster Video and everything, like I never put that together. <laughs> that was it. This is one of those movies that had a sea change effect on the culture of the country, mm. partially because of its timing. But I mean, it was a brilliant story, brilliantly told, new backdrop. I mean, the story behind it is ages old, right? Yeah. Classic, the, classic hero's journey. Classic in so many ways that I know that we'll talk about, yeah. but applied to a new genre yeah. of like smart science fiction and with new effects. Those, the effects in 1977 were mind altering. Today, looking back on it, it was, you know, you see a bunch of <laughs> some kind of look cheesy today, yeah. but in 1977, they were state of the state of the art. Yeah, it didn't really didn't look that bad. I mean, you could tell that right. it was dated in comparison to what they have now. But I mean, like everything was in time. Nothing looked flat. Like the characters right. interacted like the CGI was not that bad. Agreed. Well, uh, there's a little. Well, OK, OK, we'll get into that later. Sorry. Uh, there's a fact about it. <laughs> there's a fact about it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I got to say, I'm kind of, you know, in terms of the grid, I kind of in between. Uh, dad and uh, and Ariana, I I give this on a uh, when I'm feeling not generous an A minus uh, not generous day, uh, generous day I'd uh, you know I it's one of my favorite you know A you know it's one of my favorite films of all time obviously, yeah. uh, and and so um, because you know, it's about magic and it's about uh, you know, it's about magic and it's about the hero's journey and it, I I don't know but I I think my dad described it better than I could so thank you dad. <laughs> Yeah, ditto. Yes. Uh, so, Dad, you're, well, you answered my last question first, which was, what did Star Wars mean to you and the people of your generation? That was going to be my last question in this. <laughs> so, okay, so let's just jump to, describe your first time seeing Star Wars. That was, it was the summer of 1977. Right, right, but go, go into more detail. Well, so, I remember the first time I saw it, I was with two of my closest friends, and we... We waited in line and we bought our tickets and and we saw it and we were so blown away that it was everything we could do to wait to the next weekend when we could get back to the movie theater. And this time we didn't have any money to pay for it. So we snuck in and and we were blown away again. And so the following weekend <laughs> we snuck in again. And so you know, that's what we had to do um, because we wanted to see it. We didn't have the money. The Not movie... enough uh, cash flow on the paper route. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. When you're 13, that's what you do. Right? Yeah. Well, maybe not all 13 year olds, but, but it was, you know, for me and my friends, it was just this moment of amazement and a new, it was like, we felt like some new film genre was born, some new story in a new way of telling it. And part of it was a reaction to the elegance of the story itself. Some of it was a reaction to the to the characters, which were beautifully drawn. And then some of it was a reaction to the moment um, in time in the United States, right? So you guys probably aren't putting it together, but it was just two years after the final exit from Vietnam amazingly, you know, sort of war-torn, socially disruptive decade, the 1970s. And so the nation was, in many ways, kind of looking for a hero, right? And, and what this story does, 
this A New Hope by George Lucas, what it did masterfully was the hero in the story is actually you as the audience goer, right? Everybody identifies while watching with one or more of the characters. And so you're literally projecting yourself into the story, which is sort of the ultimate arc in any story, right? When you are part of, when you feel part of it. And so that's what it did to this generation who, for whom this story was fresh and new and the moment was ridiculously right. And so that's hard to get across even in this kind of discussion about it, about what it meant in that moment. And okay, so please tell me your usual reaction when I ask you to tell me what your favorite film is. My reaction is when you're my age, there's no way to have one film that you that stands out that much above, above the others. There's a, usually a cluster of like 10 or so that you could point to from different genres or eras or decades or something. But when you push me, I say Star Wars A New Hope because of everything I've just described to you, because it was more than just the story and the at the moment mind altering special effects and brilliantly drawn characters. It was about the the moment in the country and in the world. That's all of that together makes it. And then my friends and sneaking in and all that, it makes it, you know, altogether memorable. So uh, do we have any final thoughts before we dive into the next section? I have so many. I'm not sure what you want, Andrew, because I have no, so no, many No, 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 that, that was great. That was great. That was great. Uh, I'll, I'll ask you questions throughout the... Uh, throughout the uh, uh, proceedings. Cool. Proceedings, proceedings. um, (laughs) The proceedings. Yeah. I do want to like, I hope that anybody that catches these is, you know, getting more and more excited about understanding the time frame that a film comes from and like the makers behind the films because... Absolutely. You know, like you said, I you mean, this movie's so massive, and but I wasn't around when it came out, so all I do is hear about it. And it's easy for me to forget the time period of which it came out and the fact that it did have a huge impact because of that time period. Mm-hmm. And there, it, like, it brings out a whole new appreciation for films through time. And I'm glad yeah. that you pointed that out because through doing this and talking to Andrew about movies, like I'm learning more and more to appreciate it and look into it more often too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I could think of several movies that were equally well-timed and that's, you know, maybe that's just serendipity for the, for the directors and the actors and the movie makers. But I can think of like Apocalypse Now, unbelievable, like epic timing. Space Odyssey, 2001, same thing. So yeah, there are just some movies that have an amazing accelerant amplification based on the timing and the coincidence of the moment. Yeah, saying the right thing at the right time. Yeah, right story, right properly told at the right time. Yeah. Awesome. By the way, I'm trying to keep quiet because for right now, because I have six pages, uh, how many pages? Five pages of notes, that research that I did, <laughs> uh, not including the introduction page. So I'm keeping quiet for right now. So if you guys have okay. any other thoughts. <laughs> no, I'm excited to get to these facts. So really, uh, listeners, if this is an, if you don't like hearing me talk, if you like hearing Ariana talk, or if you like hearing our, our guests talk, skip this episode because I'll be doing <laughs> a lot of uh, jabbering on about facts. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll be able to have our guest and uh, our 
my co-host, my trusty co-host, uh, <laughs> dive in as often as possible. But uh, but first, before we dive into the facts, uh, I just want to say one thing. The film we'll be covering this episode was suggested by our good friend and a loyal listener of the podcast, Jake Sickle. After the second episode of Behind the Flicks, he wrote to us that troubled film productions are a great topic, which I absolutely agree with. He want, went on to list a number of films, including Star Wars. Thanks, Jake. Uh, we'll Thanks, be a, Jake. Yeah, absolutely. He's a great guy, right? Yeah. Good call. Yeah, we love him. Uh, I'll be dropping his uh, YouTube uh, channel uh, link in the description. So this episode, we'll be covering Star Wars. Everybody who has a passing knowledge of film history knows how, seemingly out of nowhere, it became the highest grossing film, not just for inflation, up until that point, and made its writer-director, George Lucas, a household name, and launched the career of one superstar, Harrison Ford. What else can be revealed about its history that hasn't already been covered innumerable times by innumerable sources? Actually, quite a bit. But in order to find those little golden nuggets of historical facts, I had to do research, research that I've been doing since I was eight. Finally, after all these years, my Star Wars fandom seems to have paid off. By the way, in this episode, I will, be, I will do my absolute best to stick to just the facts regarding the first Star Wars, not the entire series as a whole. Uh, covering the Star Wars franchise is a mini-series in and of itself. Yeah. By the way, just, just for the record... Uh, I, I'm an armchair historian, so I read about half of this. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, but no, it, it was actually like a, tr- quite a treasure trove of information, uh, regarding Star Wars. So if anybody is uh, interested in learning more about Star Wars, I definitely recommend picking up the making of Star Wars. So anyway, Ariana, dad, let's talk about the history behind and success story that is Star Wars. The success story began after perceived failure. George Lucas's feature-length directorial debut, THX 1138, was an adaptation of one of his groundbreaking student short films. THX 1138 was produced through American Zoetro, a company that Lucas founded with his friend and fellow filmmaker, Francis Ford Coppola. American Zoetro was given funds through the film studio Warner Brothers. These funds allowed the studio to develop the script for other projects, including Vietnam War film Apocalypse Now, which Lucas was, at that stage, set to direct. However, Lucas's bleak, dystopian science fiction film confused Warner Brothers, and THX 1138 ended up dying at the box office. Warner Brothers made Coppola pay back the money they gave him for American Zoetro. In order to repay his debt, Coppola took up the job of directing The Godfather. <laughs> oh, darn. <laughs> yeah. Did, did what he had to do, you know? Like a exactly. setback. I know. Well, actually, he he. That's this is a totally separate uh, conversation for uh, the Godfather episode, but he didn't want to do it because he didn't like the book. So, mm. and so he was literally he was a tal- uh, hired because he was like, like on near the like teens of the list of people that they wanted, and he was only hired because he was an Italian filmmaker. <laughs> that's that's the only reason, and he had a reputation. Wow. So, it's good. Coppola challenged Lucas to create a happy film. So, Lucas founded his own company, Lucasfilm, and took up the challenge. He called his film American Graffiti. Oh, yeah. But in order to get American Graffiti made, Coppola attached his name on Lucas's film as producer. And his name carried cloud at that point because The Godfather was released and was a smash hit. But, before Lucas even wrote the script for American Graffiti... 
he wanted to create a science fiction film. That film was originally going to be an adaptation of the adventure series of comic strip character Flash Gordon. Oh my gosh. But Lucas couldn't get the rights to that character, which set him on the path of creating an original screenplay, a process which lasted over three years. There are many inspirations that went into the creation of Lucas' screenplay, from the cinema of Japanese filmmaker Akira Kurosawa, who directed The Seventh Samurai, uh, The Hidden Fortress, uh, stuff like that. Yerashimon to Lucas's research into the mythology of various religions throughout the world, and to the adventures of characters such as Robin Hood and, yes, Flash Gordon. But what really shocked me when reading the creation in the, of the screenplay and the making of Star Wars was two things. The first is just how different each script was from the last. All of these changes are just too complicated for me to explain verbally, but I'll give you guys one example, and I want to hear you guys' reactions to this. One example is the title. The initial title changed from The Star Wars mm -hmm. initially to The Adventures of Luke Starkiller as taken from The Journal of the Whills, Saga 1, Star Wars. Wow. Good thing they avoided that. Yeah. Yeah. That was and that was the shooting script title. That was like wow. the that was like the one that they they were like like they handed out like that they had revised it right before like the last draft before they started filming was that title you know <laughs> according to the making of star wars they were like yeah this is good <laughs> they wouldn't have fit that on a single billboard ever <laughs> <laughs> by the way i pronounced wills with an h because there's an h in wills okay wow yeah makes it altogether less sensible well, you got well. I, I, as you noted, they they were creating this world, and so they they were yeah. basically they were just shooting in the dark at this point. I think. Yeah, I remember the the commercial on TV advertising the movie in that summer, and it, even so, the even the advertisement was like shockingly different. Right, it was this voiceover picture of dark space, enter this, what looks like a planet, but we know later it's the Death Star. And then as the music swells and the voiceover continues, the Death Star explodes into this massive, you know, interstellar explosion. And and then it fades to the word Star Wars in the logo format. And everyone was just like, wow, what is this? So they did a good job thinking through a buildup to the release of the movie and getting everybody talking about it. Um, so you just, for some reason, I just thought of that when you were describing. That's actually, that's actually a good, you brought up an excellent point. Thank you. Because your area of expertise is partly marketing. Am I right? Because you're, you're a busy businessman. <laughs> Did I get that right? Yeah. And the, and the marketing for this movie was different. That, that was a big part of it. Um, first of all, it wasn't based on a book. The movie it was, wasn't based on a book. And a lot of the other very popular movies at the time had been based on books. The benefit of making a movie based on a book is you already have an, an interested, knowing audience, right? Like The Godfather is a great example. Mario Puzo's book was New York Times bestseller for I don't know how long before they turned it into a movie. So everybody that read the book wanted to see the movie. Um, Star Wars had nothing. You know, you, they had to not only make this world up, 
but then they had to let the world know that there was something worth going and watching when it wasn't based on anything else they had previously attached themselves to. So I think they did a really interesting job with leading up to it in clever ways that hadn't been done before, one of which was television advertising. Building up the the anticipation. Patience. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I ruined your joke. I'm sorry. Rocky Horror. (laughs) Good reference to another good movie. Another good movie that's kind of totally not related. The second shock that I had when reading about the screenplay creation was just how close Lucas was working on reworking the script to the shooting date. For example, the first day of filming was now just Star Wars, started on March 22, 1976. The draft that they had for filming was rewritten by two uncredited writers, Gloria and Willard Hike, and was dated March 15th, 1976. Oh my gosh. Wow. And and they made major additions. Uh, just one example. Before that draft, Han Solo shipped. Han Solo ship. Han Solo ship. There you go. There we go. <laughs> wow. The Millennium Falcon <laughs> did not have a name. Considering the fact that Lucas was already having art design, special effects being worked on, and sets built, that's kind of insane. <laughs> I mean, they were really kind of so the, the ship itself was wasn't changed, but the the fact that they gave it a name to make it more impactful that was the addition. Uh, well, that was one of many additions that they that uh, the two uncredited writers made. Okay, I like the Millennium Falcon design because it was so distinct. Yeah, you could when it was in a scene, you could you didn't have to think; you just knew. Oh, there's the good guys. Yeah, right? you got Tie fighters, you got X-wing fighters, you got cargo ships, you got you know, imperial destroyers or whatever they are. And this was super super distinct. Uh, speaking of, uh, you know, moments in the film, like like your favorite parts, what were your guys' favorite parts of the film? Let's start with Dad. So many. I mean... Well, this this is where you can air it all out. Uh, well, okay. It's so a safe space. The, the end of the first act was especially on this most recent viewing of mine, was more stark, more distinct than I remembered from the past, right? The end of the first act is basically when Obi, Juan Kenobi, issues what is referred to as a call to the cause to Luke Skywalker, right? He says, Luke, you have to go pursue Jedi training. You have to leave this all behind. The rebellion needs you. You need to go train to be a Jedi. And and how does he react? He says, can't do it. Got too much going on here in Farmville. Yeah. Right? And it's only when he goes back, he gets on the speeder and goes back and finds his uncle and aunt blown up, killed, that he has this instant change of heart in being called to the cause. Right? Usually you think about stories, there's usually a, a wandering there between the first refusal and then the acceptance. And for him, it was like he zips out, he sees everything's blown up in his current world. He zips back and he says, I'm in. And, and I just don't remember being that quick, um, that, that brief. Yeah, same here. He's, he's just in. And if you think about it, that's the end of the first act, yeah. right, is when he says, I'm in. He's called to the cause and he's in. Prior to that, it's a little bit of the storyline is a bit of um, restless young man 
is this would be the classic story, right? Restless young man. He's in the wrong place. I could also liken his early character to to that scene in Kill Bill, and I'm doing this to tie my wife into the storyline, right? Where where the Bill character says to Uma Thurman's bride, he says to her that you are like Superman because you wake up every day and you are Superman. You are a killer. And if you try to put on clothes to be somebody else, you're covering up who you really are. Well, you think about Luke in Farmville, he's covering up who he really is, right? He comes from Jedi royalty and he's stuck in Farmville. So he's already fish out of water. He's already, that creates this restless young man. Yeah, and he doesn't understand why. Yeah, you know, that's he's right. just he's, trying to break out and he's done with it, but he hasn't beautiful. figured it out. And it was like, then this opportunity path comes in his Perfect. way. And it's like, I think that he wanted to immediately when he was like, let's go to Andoral, the planet. Yeah. And he just Alderaan. like went, oh, yeah, wait, but but my parents said I got to stay here. Maybe exactly. I shouldn't. You know, it was like yeah. kind of like a reactionary fear, but sure. I think he'd always wanted to go, which is why he switches yeah. so fast. I think that's perfect, Ariana. That's right. He was, it was, he was struggling with loyalty to his uncle and aunt who'd raised him, but otherwise he was ready to go. He had no interest, right? He was counting the days till he could get out already. And so the end of the, so that whole stream of logic and then to the end of the first act was super compelling to me. I thought they did it really well. Um, I, I also think where, what, but what really gets you is the second act. I mean, obviously that's what a second act is intended to do, right? The second act ends when they rescue Leia. And now they have her safely aboard the Millennium Falcon. And they're, you could tell that they got away so easily. And they, and they admit it and they say something's, something's strange because we got away. And, but if you think about it, at that moment, they kind of had everything they needed. They had Leia. They had gotten her. They had reunited R2-D2 with Leia. And Han, and Han Solo was, or I should say, Obi-Wan Kenobi was involved so they kind of got back to where they were supposed to be. So it was a real clean wrap on the second act. Um, and it, so it set up this massive conflict for the third act. So I thought this, that the buildup was just so well done and the cleanliness or the, the, how compelling it was as you transition from one act, from act one to act two to act three, I just thought was, this is the brilliance of it. And act two is where Han Solo just takes over the show yeah right i mean yeah. you just it's and in fact you could say it's han solo and princess leia really right that's the dynamic in the second act that you just go this is a brilliant story you expect it all to be about luke but it's almost equivalently about these other characters and you don't know where they're coming from the backstories are there's huge backstories that are thinly veiled that you know are there but you don't know anything about them at least we didn't in 1977 so I, it just set, was all set up so perfectly that the third act concludes with what? You want more. You don't want the movie to end, right? You, yeah. The third act concludes, they're victorious. They blow up this Death Star. They get their medals. They're, you know, they're the face of the rebellion. But you're like, no, it can't end here. They've got so much more to do. And, you know, it's just perfectly set up like that. So that's what I love about the whole movie. It's just unbelievable arc. Start to finish. How like character cleanly they, they, they yeah. turned the pages for you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, yes, I absolutely agree. The structure is amazing. And it's uh, kind of one of those great screenplays. What do we think of the moments in the film? 
Like what? Like you know, what I mean, like yeah. When I mean, when you were talking about how um, the the end of the second act when they rescue Leia and how like you see all of them kind of come together in that arc, it reminded me of the moment in the garbage. Yeah. Where they just barely make it, and I just like when I was watching that and seeing all of their reactions, it was like the moment where they all melded because they're yeah. all like. Oh my gosh, we're alive and yeah. like overly joyous and Han and Leia hug and like Chewie's like freaking out. And it's like yeah. the moment where they all become like now they're you united. Know, they have a synergy now in the situation they're in. Great. And it made I feel perfect. like it made them all like instantly care about each other. And I just loved that moment when they all were like, We made it like it was, I thought that was wonderful. Yeah, I agree. Also you notice in that second act during the rescue they use humor really effectively. Yeah. Right. And in sequence, two moments of humor stand out for me. One, Andrew and I joke about all the time. We reference it all the time, but it's worth pointing out. It's when they're blasting their way into the cell block and they basically kill all the stormtroopers. And now Han Solo has to pretend that everything's okay there. They're trying to prevent them from sending more reinforcements of stormtroopers. So he says something silly, you know, like, everything's fine here now. Thank you. And uh, how are you? And, you know, it, it was just so it was almost whimsical yeah. in, a, in a really tense moment. And he pulled it off so well that you're just like, oh, that was it was this mixture of comedy with real drama in a sci-fi movie. You just didn't see that at the time. Yeah. And then a little bit later, not much later, they when Luke makes it to Leia's holding cell and opens the the gate the pod door first thing she says to him is you're a little short for a stormtrooper aren't you <laughs> it's like <laughs> really the two mate two major characters the first the first thing they say to one another is a piece of comedy that was really i even wondered if that was like unscripted or something it was just so well thought through <laughs> What's amazing about the dialogue and the jokes in that uh, in that sequence is uh, it describes their characters. It like you know, like Han, with Han Solo, it definitely uh, like him saying everything's fine here now. Thank you. How are you? You know that that, yeah. that not, that's good. not only funny, but it also informs his character. Like it's yeah. perfect. I couldn't agree more. And you got the cadence just right. Thank you. Yeah, yeah yes. you did. <laughs> I've been practicing it since I was eight. <laughs> that's true yeah. you, you are well aware of that yeah, I am well aware of that <laughs> he made sure to be uh, the subject of your practice I'm sure Yeah. oh absolutely <laughs> another fact that's kind of crazy to consider is that while Star Wars is one of the most successful franchises of all time now that success was n far from guaranteed the most successful science fiction film up until that point was Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey that film, which was released in 1968, only made a profit by 1971. In short, films dealing with science fiction were not immediately destined for big box office. So the studio funding Star Wars, 20th Century Fox, had little faith in the film. But when American Graffiti became one of the top 10 highest grossing films of all time at that point in history, Lucas and company had leverage to negotiate contracts before filming Star Wars. Lucas knew, even at that point, that he had written so much for Star Wars that he wanted to create a series of films. So, in a move that surprised 20th Century Fox executives, instead of demanding more money, 
Lucas demanded full control and total rights over Star Wars' merchandising and the Star Wars sequels. Oh my gosh. Amazing. There had been Smart no... Smart move. There Smart had, move. Exactly. There had been no precedent for either of those two things doing as good as an original film at that point in film history. Fox executives gladly gave him those rights and, at the end of the story, lost out on billions of dollars for decades to come. Yeah. <laughs> Beautiful. This is what I mean about the marketing around it. It was You could always tell that the marketing around the movie was just different. And, of course, once you saw the movie, the marketing possibilities were staggering. Merchandising. Because the merchandising was staggeringly big because the characters were so beloved already. Yeah. And the you know. world was so big. I mean, everything about the world is different than, a, you know, a standardized film. So, of course, you could create these little gadgets and merch that people are going to be like, I want that because you only see it in Star Wars. The studios just had no experience with other revenue models other than ticket sales and rights to the intellectual property of the movie. That was all they knew. There had never been a movie prior to this that demonstrated such enormous capacity for merchandising, so why would they have even factored that in? And and as for future movies on the same, you know, on the same theme, it's like, come on, we haven't even done the first one yet. Why would we care about that? Yeah. There was nothing was proven about this. And as you said, they were already skeptical about science fiction. So I'm sure they felt like, well, this is a great way to just minimize our risk if this director slash producer is going to, you know, negotiate away what the only thing they really knew as revenue generating, profit building, for them, I'm sure it was an easy decision in the moment. They didn't know that the whole world was going to change, pivot literally <laughs> around this movie. Yeah. So, you know, unsurprised. The only precedent really before that was like uh, Disney films having like marketing for their musicals and uh, like records and uh, storybooks, stuff like that. Yep. Not for a science fiction film. No. Yep. no. Nothing at this scale. Nada. Exactly. By the way, here's another fact that kind of shocked me when I read the making of Star Wars. Between Harrison Ford, Carrie Fisher, and Mark Hamill, guess who was paid the least amount of money? Well, I think you're reeling, you're reeling us in to say Carrie Fisher, but I was she like, was. That's what I want yeah, to but say. she's she was from, she was a descendant of a well of well known actors, so I'm gonna say Harrison Ford. Ariana. I mean, uh, uh, Mark Hamill on the chances I win this. Dad, yeah, that's a good guess. You are correct. <laughs> the answer is Harrison Ford at seven hundred and fifty dollars a week. Wow. <laughs> By comparison. Peter Cushing, who played Tarkin. Remember Tarkin, mm. Ariana? Oh, yeah. The uh, guy in the gray suit. Uh, the Kind of like Grand Moff Tarkin, who... Uh, the bony guy. You know him? The older, dark gentleman who always was standing next to Darth Vader. He was he was even Darth Vader's oh! superior. He was Darth Vader's superior. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Very famous actor. Peter Cushing, who played that, played that character, was paid $2,800 a day. Holy moly. Yeah. That's amazing. As Michael Scott would say, my, my, how the turntables or something like that. <laughs> yeah. There were many people working behind the scenes who would go on to become legends themselves. One of the artists who worked on the creatures in the famous cantina sequence was Rick Baker, who would go on to do the werewolf transformation in American Werewolf in London. Nice. 
nice. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. That's a really good fact. Absolutely. Yeah. That that cantina scene was yeah. world changing. Yeah. Right. I mean Was it really? There were so many references to it fell you know, in just the country's lexicon after that. There was just so much impact that that one scene had. I mean, so many scenes, if you break them down, had big impact. But the cantina scene was the most joked about, the most talked about, just in it, all by itself. It was epic. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I don't like you. Oh, no. Okay, let me chop your arm off. No big deal. Exactly. <laughs> Another behind-the-scenes legend was Dan O'Bannon who worked on the special computerized Death Star plan sequence. Remember that? Uh, like the actual grids? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. O'Bannon wrote the screenplay for 1979's Alien. What? Cool. Yeah, yeah. That's sick. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I mean, basically they got everybody who was involved, who was even tangentially related in monsters and science fiction, they kind of try to put them in this movie, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, they didn't. I mean, you can't do it much better than they did in Aliens. That was... Exactly. Another person by the name of Ben Burt would make some of the most significant contributions to Star Wars. Burt's passion for sound began as a child when he would hold a tape recorder up to a radio and record whatever he heard. As an adult, Burt was assigned by Lucas to create the sounds of the world of Star Wars from blasters to lightsabers to Chewbacca's grunts and growls and beyond. Funnily enough, Bert also uses childhood recordings of the radio as sound effects in the film. <laughs> so that's, that's great. Yeah, like the static and the yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of a weird hobby, but it, thankfully, it paid off. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. Good for him. Industrious little kid. Almost as weird as having an eight-year-old who wants to be a film director. Um, <laughs> Steven Spielberg recommended a certain composer by the name of John Williams for George Lucas after his exemplary work scoring Jaws. Yeah, right. I remember that fact. That's big. What do we think of the score and the sounds of Star Wars, guys? I mean, it's awesome. They make it epic and very signature to the movie, I feel like. I mean, maybe I just say that because I've heard that sound my whole life and you instantly know it's Star Wars and it doesn't sound like anything else. But, I mean, I thought it was amazing. So I'll put myself back in the day when I first saw it and tell you, because this was the movie, the music, the score, elements of the score became equally famous to the movie, right? I mean, the, 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 um, oh, what, what do you, sorry, Andrew, what do you refer the, um, what, what? the title sequence or the title composition, right? Is, oh, oh, opening theme. Yeah. The, the theme, the opening theme is so well done and everyone knew the opening theme. It was, you know, it was, it was just as identifiable as the characters in the movie, which says something all by itself. And then if you notice throughout the movie, they use sections of that theme in different time sequences and different amplitude to highlight moments, especially the good guy moments. Um, you know, the jet, when they're, when Luke and the gang are, are on the, on the on a good move, they use that that music in a very upbeat way. Um, but one of the things I noticed in this most recent watching is that other than the opening theme and the closing, um, a lot of the score kind of falls to the background, which I think is a good thing. 
right? It, it becomes a strong compliment without getting in the way at all. It's just like there and it's heightening every scene, but it's not like individually memorable. What's memorable beyond compare almost is the opening and closing theme song. Um, I don't know. That was what I took away from the most recent viewing. I agree with you. I agree. Because I remember, like, you know the scene where he's looking out into the desert in the beginning of the movie? with the, yeah. uh, Looking out on the sunset? Like, you're not super focused on what you're hearing, but it's still, like, moving you somehow. Exactly. As you're watching him, like, gaze into the sunset. Yeah. And so, like, I, I, I feel that the few times that it sticks out at you is when the theme happens. Yeah. And I everything like else is just kind of, like, helping you feel through the movie without really yeah. pulling your attention. And I think in that specific theme, in that specific scene, I think it was like a it was like a fraction of the band, and it was a lo- it was a sh- it was at a different time sequence. It was longer. It was I don't know what the right musical term is, but it was it, it wasn't as fast. It was a slower timing, and so you're yeah, it was more melancholy, right? It was yeah. more like you're feeling this emotion of Luke as he's looking out over the horizon, and yeah, that was big. Yeah, that uh, theme is called the binary sunset. That's, yeah, uh, that's the that's, name of that. And you've told me that before, right? Yeah, yeah. It's it's an that's an amazing sequence because it uh, it you know it's one of those places in the film where you can finally just slow down for a second, which is so necessary in order. F- it, it's kind of like winding it up in order to spring forward with the action. It's kind of like giving the audience a little bit of a break, and that sequence delivers that. So, yeah, that's a great interpretation. I agree. Yeah, despite all these moving parts. And the fact that Lucas was trying things that had never before been attempted in the history of filmmaking. 20th Century Fox wanted to release Star Wars on Christmas 1976. For those of you keeping track, filming began in March of that year. Yeah. In an attempt to make that date, Lucas would bicycle from soundstage to soundstage, sometimes monitoring three separate crews who were filming three separate parts of the film simultaneously. Mm. Wow. Lucas would eventually check himself into the hospital due to the pressure making the film and was diagnosed with hypertension and exhaustion. Yeah. Wow. All for a a date that wasn't to be. But before that release date, Lucas held a screening for several of his filmmaker friends in February of that year. Some of his friends included Brian De Palma and Steven Spielberg. However, Lucas showed the film without John Williams' score, which was not yet recorded, and without most of the special effects. For example, when the Millennium Falcon fights the TIE Fighters, that scene was cut to World War II combat footage instead of what you see in the final film. Oh, gosh. So it's cut from, like, the actors to a totally different movie. Yeah. Oh, jeez. So, so basically the uh, filmmakers who were in the audience were like, uh, what? <laughs> what <Yeah>. is, <laughs> they, like, they were, they were expected to, like, understand what was going on. So I'm guessing those early screenings didn't go over too well. That screening did not go over too well. Except for one person. Spielberg was apparently the only one in the group that had faith in Star Wars. But Lucas was feeling down on his film. In fact, Lucas was so underconfident in his film that when he was visiting the set of Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Lucas made a bet with the other director. If Spielberg gave Lucas 2.5% of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Lucas would give Spielberg 2.5% of Star Wars. (laughs) according to business insider that means spielberg would end up making 40 million dollars off of star wars well lucas according to my calculations 
uh, and dad, correct me if I'm wrong, you can Google this later and uh, you're the math whiz. Uh, Lucas made roughly $7.5 million off of that bet. <laughs> so Close Encounters did well, but not anywhere near Star Wars is your point. Oh, God, no, no. Yeah. Correct. You are correct. Yeah. 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 It's not a bad idea, though, generally speaking. I mean, for the for them, <laughs> for those who can make such a deal to kind of hedge their own yeah. bets, it's not exactly. such a bad idea, really. Not bad. I'm impressed by that wisdom all by itself. Huh. Surprisingly, 20th Century Fox executives had the opposite reaction to the filmmakers when they first saw Star Wars. One of the executives even praised it as the greatest film he'd ever seen. Even at that but version? Mo- yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. believe it okay. or not, yeah. But most movie theaters had no interest in showing Star Wars. But 20th Century Fox demanded that in order to show The Other Side of Midnight, an adaptation of a wildly successful novel of the same name, they had to play Star Wars. Now, when they did, it shattered box office records, and The Other Side of Midnight was kind of a flop. And Star Wars went on to win eight Academy Awards, including an honorary Oscar, for the exemplary sound editing done by the aforementioned Ben Burt. Oh my gosh, I had no idea that Star Wars was nominated for Oscars. And it won eight, yeah. It won eight. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yeah it was now, epic, okay. I told you. Sci-fi movies barely do that today. Yeah. Yeah. Now I got now I didn't I didn't want to bring this up because, you know, he's kind of a hot button issue right now, but uh the film actually lost Best Picture and Best Director and Best Screenplay to Woody Allen's Annie Hall. Right. Um, now, here's the thing, guys. I have a hot take. I have wrestled with myself at nights about this, seriously. <laughs> but I think I've come to a conclusion. If I had to redo the Oscars that year, I'd give Best Director to George Lucas, but I would leave Best Picture for Annie Hall. As a film, okay. I mean, as mythology and as a cultural impact and all these different things, I think Star Wars is definitely the superior film. As a film, I think Annie Hall's the superior film. Sorry, guys. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get reamed by the internet for this one. I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> but I think Annie Hall's uh, just as a cinema piece of cinema is the better film. Mm. But as mythology and cultural impact. I understand your logic. I don't agree with it, but I understand it. And, and I think it's a, I think it's a fair characterization. I don't think, I don't support your conclusion, but I, fair enough. but I support the logic behind it. You know, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about, but is so principal to the timeline story you just told is industrial light and magic. ILM didn't exist in this form before Star Wars. Right. And so they were creating all of the worlds that are debuted in the movie, they were creating them from scratch. They were creating new techniques for making those worlds seem real. I mean, there was it was so much groundbreaking work going on to make Star Wars. The fact that they tried to do it on that timeline seems impossible. And of course, it ended up being so. But even then, releasing in May of 77 is really remarkably fast given all that they had to accomplish had, that had nothing to do with the actors. And in terms of camera-ready camera models and of the worlds and everything that they had the fighters and to work with, I mean, I've just got to believe. I mean, they were so painstakingly detailed that, I mean, it just seems like 
literally they're creating worlds and then trying to figure out how to film them in a way that creates this realistic look and feel. And they did a great job for 1977. It was just, like I said earlier, it was mind-altering at the time. I mean, you, you know, when, Ariana, when you look at uh, films with spaceships, you know, before Star Wars, you know, there were... If you see ever see this movie called Forbidden Planet, you know, it's like it's like two pin pie trays glued together, it kind of looks like, spinning around almost. Oh, you know, it man. looks totally smooth. Meanwhile, George Lucas was smart enough to say, well, no, this has to look like this world has history to it. Yeah. There has to be a logic to it, even if that logic doesn't make sense to us. And so that's why they're all like the little pieces in it. Yeah. The only thing close that had been previously accomplished, I would say, would have been 2001. Yeah. Right? Some of the space scenes in 2001, there were, there were relatively few shots and the complexity was a lot lower, I would argue, in 2001. In Star Wars, there were way more shots. They were, the complexity level was much, much higher um, and the realism was even better. Yeah, de- definitely. And speaking of the special effects, uh, that you, we mentioned at the beginning of this podcast uh, how like the special effects didn't look too bad versus how... I just want to let you know, Ariana, my dad and I watched a different mo- a version of the movie from what you saw. Um, so George Lucas, back in 1997, he uh, made changes, alterations to the movie, and he started making alterations uh, for years to come until he sold it, sold uh, all the Star Wars movies to uh, Disney. So basically, like, there are entire scenes that are added in the film that are not in the original 1977 release. Um, So personally, I'm kind of against that. Um, So I I made my dad sit down and watch the original Star Wars with me. So like, for example, like the original Star Wars is not called Star Wars New Hope. It's called Star Wars. Um, Remember the sequence with Jabba the Hutt that you saw? Yeah, with him and Han Solo outside the ship. Yeah, that was cut from the original. Oh. Because, we did, because yeah. they didn't have the technology to make Jabba the Hutt move back then. And they added that back in 1997. What? Yeah. That was one of the scenes I was tripping out about, about how good the, the computerization was. Yeah, yeah they, was, they didn't that have was that. done years later. Yeah. Andrew's told me this before. Yeah, we didn't meet Jabba the Hutt until... Return of the which Jedi. One? Return of the Jedi, yeah. And right, I remember... I, I don't remember A New Hope as the title. It was... It wasn't. There was no title, A New Hope, until much later when they had created the first trilogy, finished the first trilogy. Um, yeah. It was just Star Wars. There was no chapter title to it, of course. Makes sense, though, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, they were smart about it. When you watch the movie, there's so many lines about, you're our only hope, this is our hope, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, at least they made a, a good conscious decision on what to name it after the fact. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, you, you know, it's an interesting thing because uh, Star Wars fans have now been like, uh, well, I'll I'll probably you know this is a huge discussion that could be a podcast episode on its own, but there's like this whole controversy on the internet about like, oh, George Lucas is changing Star Wars and not letting the original Star Wars be seen. So I'll probably link to videos of that uh, in the description. But yeah, uh, curious. In case people get curious, yeah. But, uh, you know, it's... it's So, like, for example, people have, like... The, the version that Dad and I saw, uh, 
literally uh, what, what somebody did was that they bought prints of the movie, like film prints, in order to get the original version. And they scanned it one frame at a time, the entire movie, and then they cleaned it up on their own. Like, this is just an independent project, independent of any studio, because they want the, a good quality version of the, of the original movie to be available. Disney isn't Amazing. doing that. Disney is Amazing. Yeah. So if you were to stream Star Wars A New Hope right now, you would be seeing the altered version that Lucas re-released in the 90s, correct? Uh, well, he made further alterations for like three more times, two more times, I'd say. Really? Yeah. So he continued tweaking it? Yeah. Wow. Hmm. So it's a lot different than the original release in 77. There are like three scenes added, shots altered, yeah. Yeah. Dang. Wow. Yeah. So, I, I don't know. What, okay, so as a critic, Ariana, uh, what do you think about this? Uh, like, do, do you think that uh, directors should be able to go back and uh, change their films? I'm of the opinion, personally, that uh, it's fine to change your film so long as you make the original available. Same. Because a, a part of me is like, I, the original has value, you know? It's the first thing that people saw. I think that's a, a lot. There's definitely, like, an audience for people that don't want to see alterations. They want to see what the pu original public... Um, you know, viewed during the original release. So I think it's important to make sure that that's accessible to people. But I mean, if it's your own project and you didn't have the resources and uh, or the time to make it how you wanted at the time, I don't see anything wrong with you like adjusting and, you know, putting forth the effort to create the project you dreamed of originally as a director. Because I think that's cool to watch too. Yeah. Absolutely. It's uh, it's interesting to see a director's take uh, or a creator's take on their own material later in life. But at the same time, they should also not poo-poo the original, you know? Yeah. By the way, I think George Lucas is a genius. And I think uh, what he's done for cinema is amazing. Um, these are just my own personal opinions. All right. Uh, do we have any final thoughts? On the Anybody? Speak now and forever hold your peace. <laughs> So wait, this really birthed the career of Harrison Ford? This was yeah. his first like major well, film? Well, he was in American Graffiti before. He was in American Graffiti, right? But oh. but pretty much, well, okay. So he had been in The Conversation, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's film. Uh, and, and he had been like in little bit parts. Uh, but this is the f first film where he was like really pretty much front and center. Okay. Gosh, I didn't know that because I'm watching the movie and I'm like, oh, Harrison Ford's the only like recognizable face, but he's <laughs> not. He was just as new as everyone else. What about Carrie Fisher? Was she in anything major before this? Shampoo. Just her name. She was in this movie in a brief role called Shampoo with Warren Beatty and Goldie Hawn and Julie Christie. Shampoo was a big hit, relatively. Uh, her role, if I remember right, her though, her role was mine was small in that movie relative to the other stars because there were some big names in that movie that Andrew just mentioned, and so her role would have been small. But as I said earlier, she was from Hollywood royalty, right? That's Debbie right. Reynolds and Eddie Fisher yeah. uh, are her parents. I love Debbie Reynolds. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. How yeah. cool. I guess well, I mean a final thought for me would be so I'm thinking about the end of the movie and at the time. You know, the story, that, that first chapter is pretty well sewn up, right? Many movies end with less conclusion than this one ended. You know, it ended, good guys win, characters arced, 
you, you know, faith in goodness prevails, so much was wrapped up. But, but the backstories and the backdrop that had been created through that story arc was so enormous that it was all we could do to hope and wait for another chapter. And so I can't help but think back to that summer and thinking, like, they've got to do something more with this, right? Like, they can't let this end, even though at the moment our thinking was, well, this story is kind of closed, but there's so much else going on that they mentioned that something else, you know, little did we know that, you know, that A New Hope was like this much of a, you know, of a galaxy uh, that George Lucas had had in mind. And so what's amazing is that the second one, Return of the Jedi. No, no, no. Empire Strikes Back. Sorry, sorry. Empire Strikes Back. And but then a Return of the Jedi. The, the, so the second and third in sequence of, of being created, the second and third movies were like they didn't they just kept getting better in our in our minds. And so like a whole new is you couldn't imagine how excited people were about the second one. Right. About the Empire Strikes Back and then Return of the Jedi. You can't even imagine. And the fact that they were as good or better. You know, I think there are some critics of those, of those, but by and large, the story just keeps getting better and the characters keep arcing and you keep learning more amazing things about the characters and their backgrounds. And I don't know. So I just think that it was the beginning of something that all by itself, the chapter was amazing, but the story that was about to unfold was 10 times more amazing. You know, I now that you say that, it's like, because right in the beginning, he mentions, you know, his father and his uncle wants to drop it. And there's like all this history that yep. never gets touched on outside of that first act with Luke yeah. and Obi-Wan. And like, it just leaves you wondering, like, he had to have thought of the backstory, you know, with when he released this movie. He had to have, like, given some forethought to it that there could be more or that I have so much more to these stories. And if people like this, I'm going to continue to explore it but yeah i mean he had to have been thinking about that i mean between the merchandising thing and you know just how rich everything became he i don't think he was no dummy i think he thought about that before like even as he was writing this first movie yeah absolutely i i think george lucas um was definitely uh had a lot of foresight and what's what's this is kind of a success story in terms of having keeping the faith in your own vision. Um, and I think George Lucas was uh, very smart at doing that. So George Lucas, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, feel free to come on as a guest. You know, <laughs> we'll have a good time with you. Yeah. Speaking of guests, dad, where can people follow you? Do you have anything you'd like to promote? <laughs> uh, wow. Um, not really. Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> you don't I'd want like to promote follow- my son, Andrew Gentile. <laughs> exactly. I, if anybody you don't want needs freelance movie Instagram. editing, if anybody wants freelance movie uh, and audio editing, Andrew Gentile is the place to go. He's a recent graduate of San Francisco State's Film School. That's right. He's experienced. Um, he's energetic. He has an uncanny knowledge of film. And all right. Make, all right. Yeah. There, that's Aww. honestly what I want. All right. All right. All right. I wanted to hear the dad spiel. Yeah. There yeah. It was. Well. 
Yeah, Did you have a link you can send them to, Andrew? Maybe your LinkedIn profile? <laughs> uh, yeah, I could do that. I, I could, I could do yeah. that, actually. That's yeah. what I want to promote. I want to promote you and your launching into what should be an amazingly successful career in and around filmmaking. Thank you, Dan. Ariana, any closing thoughts for you? Go watch, go rewatch this movie if you haven't, and you'll fall in love with it all over again. Listeners, if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, feel free to shoot us an email at independentcreatorstudios at gmail.com. If you like this episode, please write a review and subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or YouTube. We'd love to hear your feedback. Behind the Flicks was created by myself and Ariana. I researched, wrote, and edited this episode. My name is Andrew Gentile. This has been an Independent Career Studios production. Bye.